everybody. Welcome back to The Smattering, where we like to answer... Uh, what do we do? Do we ask the important, the hard questions? I think we do both. We we ask and answer them. That's that's true. That's it. That's it. And I'm Jason Hall. That's the voice of the people, Jeff Santoro. Jeff, we we're going to be answering those questions from our listeners today, right? That's right. We got a mailbag episode. Um Got a lot of good ones from a bunch of people on the interwebs, so we're going to go through those. Um, and then in the in the second half of the show, we're going to do a quick uh, February update on the Smatterfolio. It feels like we just did the January one because we did it a little bit late, and February is a short month. So we are going to talk about how the stocks in the portfolio did in February. So stick around for that. We'll do that at the end. Um, but but first, let's uh, do a real quick uh, plea and ask for shares and likes and subscribes and ratings. Uh, we're still trying to get the show out there to people. So if you're enjoying it, let other people know about it. Retweet it on Twitter, like it on the podcast apps, subscribe on the YouTube channel, all of the things. Um, help us get the word out there. Yeah, absolutely. And also, we like to hear from you. That's how we do mailbags. We get some great show topic ideas from you. Um, so definitely keep those coming too. Same thing Jeff said, you get those to this, you can uh, tweet at us, you can d- DM on Twitter, you can send them to the show's email address, all the ways you can find us, like Jeff said, in the show notes right there. Shall we, shall we pick a question and answer, Jeff? Let's do it. So the first couple we got were from Austin. He sent us an email with uh, a bunch of good questions here. So I'll read the first one, Jason, and then you can... Uh, you can kick it off with your thoughts, and I'll add on at the end. So uh, Austin writes, what do you guys think of Inviva's 8.5% dividend? Is their earnings growth strong enough to justify such a high dividend, or is it a dividend value trap? What is the most significant bear case for this company, and what is the most significant bull case for this company? So Inviva, uh, ticker symbol is EVA. Um, they make uh, wood, wood pellets. Uh, as an alternative fuel source. So, uh, Jason, why don't you uh, take the first crack at the question for us? Yeah, so just for anybody that doesn't know Inviva, um, and what sense is it? Is this like, so the whole thesis of the business is it makes wood pellets that companies can use as a feedstock for power plants. Um, people might think of like the Traeger grills and that kind of stuff. That's not what they're doing. They're selling this to, to um, power producers. Uh, it's a really quick plug-and-play feedstock to replace coal, um, and you might be thinking it's actually, it's just, it's got some interesting, uh, green bona fides too. And you might be thinking, how in the hell does it make sense to burn trees? How is that green? And what they're doing is they're taking waste and byproducts from the forestry industry. So, uh, logging the, the making two by fours and timber and paper and all of those paper products, all the boxes that, that show up at your house from Amazon, um, the, not every part of the, the tree is economically viable to make a wood product with. The tops of the trees, limbs that are too small, you know, all the other stuff. So that waste product, that's what, that's what Inviva is buying and converting into the wood product. So the idea is the timber mills, they, they, they regrow pretty quickly and they tend to expand and actually increase the amount of timber, right? So it creates an efficient carbon cycle that's better than burning hydrocarbons. So anyway, that's the basic thesis. And the idea is there, that's the basic gist of the company. And the thesis is this company that's going through enormous growth right now. They're really expanding their facilities. There's a ma- massive amount of uptake of this product in Europe. Um, yeah. Right, Jeff? Yeah, a lot of Europe, a lot, uh, lot of contracts trying to help 
European countries get through the energy crisis that's been a result of the war in Ukraine. So yeah, a lot of right. growth right now. And a cheap and a cheap way to shift away from coal and and get a better carbon footprint, right? And reduce the uh, particulates and all the other stuff that come with coal too. So in between the time that we got the email from Austin and now, it's no longer yielding 8.5%. It's yielding almost 9.9%. Yeah, that's um, crazy. But here's the thing. I will be I will be blunt. I don't think I think again that's a trailing yield. That's the dividend that it paid the most recent dividend that it's paid. This is a company that's on the precipice of not being able to maintain that dividend. I think there is a certain risk of a yield trap. Let me kind of walk walk through it, Jeff. This is one you and I have actually been we've talked about this one a good bit the past few days. Um, and well, I, and I, I've I've talked to you about it even longer ago because yeah. I I love the story of this company. I do too. Right? I own we've, I own some. I own a small yeah. amount. Um, but yeah, we've been talking about the company for probably a year or so. But like more recently, we've really kind of honed in. Um, and you've certainly put on a little bit more critical eye here um, and thinking about, well, can, can all of this growth that they've got lined up, how could the dividend not be safe? And, and I think there's a couple realities we have to think about. Company loses money now, right? If we look at it on a gap basis. And gap's not always a perfect um, measure of, of a company's like cash flows, right? Particularly a company that's spending a ton of CapEx to grow because you take on a lot of depreciation. Like you, you spend the capital, right? You raise the cash, you spend the capital, and then you start depreciating it maybe before those assets have really started generating cash flows. Your operating expenses might go up as you're bringing those facilities online before they really start ramping up. So all of those factors kind of come into play. But here's the thing. And Viva has, um, is going to have to continue to take on a pretty decent amount of debt to fund its future growth um, and meet its its capital obligations. And very recently, the day I believe the day that it reported earnings last week, it announced um, essentially what's it's called a pie. It's a, calling it a pipe, but it's essentially like a secondary offering, right? Where they're raising two hundred fifty million dollars through um, through equity. And they 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 they're doing it at, at like a low point in the stock price over the past few years, right? So I, I don't know. Just to me, that says a lot about a company that is living on the generosity of others to raise capital. And at some point, something's going to have to give. And that dividend at this point, the mar- the market obviously thinks it's going to be the dividend the way it's it's voting the share prices. But yeah, and and they've been burning cash, right? So f- prior to twenty twenty one, they were. Back and forth between like a little bit of a little down, a little bit up on free cash flow, kind of breaking even on the aggregate. And over the past year plus, two years, it's just been more and more cash burn. So, you know, you, like you mentioned, it they're they're spending a lot to build the facilities to meet the demand that they're seeing. They are signing new contracts, long term contracts with price escalators built in. So, basically, if you think that dividend is going to be safe, you're really hope you're. You're betting that management is right, yeah. That they, that they're going to be able to sustain it. And I listened to the earnings call uh, a little bit this morning, and they are they talked so much about the dividend being safe that it almost sounded defensive. That like, I know sounds, that's that to me. Last time I heard a company do that, that it really kind of stuck with me, and it like like is a major fail was with Kinder Morgan back in 2014 or 2015. The CEO spent five minutes 
on an earnings call. And that's a long time to spend on an earnings call, talking about how their cash flows were, the dividend was well supported, and that they would be able to even continue like all of their like their capital commitments for their growth spending. All of that was totally fine. And within months, maybe within weeks, Jeff, but certainly within months, um, the most powerful individual force on their ability to continue supporting that dividend spoke up. And that was their, 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 their capital markets partners, their lenders, who said, okay, if we're going to issue you more debt, if, you're gonna, if we're going to lend any more money to you, you need to generate more unfettered cash. You need to figure out how to do that. They and were basically they the saying dividend. got the dividend. <laughs> yeah. And the dividend got slashed. And everything the CEO said was true. It was completely true. Within all of their guidances and everything that they said and the cash flows they generated after that period, it was all true. But when your growth is built on somebody else giving you money, you have to follow whatever their terms are if you're going to get their money. And I'm, and I'm afraid that that's the situation for Inviva. I want to put one more bullet uh, exclamation point on this, Jeff. And that's, you can talk about gap earnings, you can talk about free cash flow and all that stuff, but I think you, you start with operating cash flow, okay? Right, because this is what's left over after you've, after you've paid to run the business, right? So it doesn't include capital expenditures, but like this is what's left over. And, and last year burned $90 million in operating cash flow. And that is highly concerning to me for Inviva. Yeah. So to answer Austin's question succinctly, um, yeah, it, the dividend does not look sustainable, at least not to the two of us. I mean, it may end up being, but it, you're you're sort of putting your faith, um, your results in in, the, in management's hands to to be completely. And like you said, with Kim and Morgan, like they may have all the intentions in the world to uh, to keep the dividend, but you know, factors might force their hand at some point. May the odds ever be in your favor. That's right. Let's stay positive here. We got one um, more from Austin here, right? Yeah, one more. And I'll read it and I'll just stop talking because I have no idea how to answer this. So I will rely on you. This is your wheelhouse. Um, of the following renewable energy affiliated companies, which do you think should be included in a set it and forget it 10 to 15 year plus investment basket? And then he also writes, are there any tickers not included that you think should be? So if we're building a basket here, Jason, of set it and forget it, renewable energy affiliated companies, who do you put in there and who do you keep out? Yeah, so I'm going to take out the word set it and can forget it and go with high conviction instead because I think so much can change in 10 or 15 years. I just think you have to be careful and not – and a lot's going to change in this industry in ten or fifteen years. Could. It could. Yeah, like, I mean, this it isn't really Coca Cola, <laughs> right? You know, like right, right. There's so many levers that affect these companies. Cost of capital, which we just talked about with, you know, we've talked about a lot with rising interest rates. Um, a lot of these companies tend to use a lot of debt because they're building these facilities, and then they sell the power on long term contracts. Like, there's so many kind of takes and puts that are into place. The legislation that we just got passed, the the um, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, this is the worst named legislation in history. Um, billions of dollars are flowing into renewables. That's a tailwind. What's it going to mean economically in reality? How long is that tailwind going to last? 10 or 15 years from now, we start getting more mature with renewables. What is the battery? I mean, there's all of those things coming to play, right? So all that to say, I don't think set up and forget it's really safe for any 
basket of stocks. So what are these companies? We've got Brookfield Renewable, Next Era Energy, the big utility that owns Florida Power and Light. It also owns a big independent power business where it sells power to other. It's, it's an unregulated utility business, basically. And part of that is um, a lot of renewables. Uh, Next Era Energy Partners is one of its vehicles that it uses to fund renewable energy projects. And then you have Atlantica Sustainable Infrastructure, Clearway Energy, um, Hannon Armstrong, and then, of course, Inviva we talked about. So all of these companies, but I'll take Inviva out because we've already talked about that, and say these are companies that, by and large, focus mostly on wind and solar, some power transmission, hydroelectric, so like the, the, the zero-carbon, low-carbon ways to make electricity, they're beginning to look at batteries, like as that becomes more economic, like all of those things. And Jeff, this is the most important thing to me about this particular basket. And I know Austin and I have interacted on Twitter. One of the reasons it's been attractive to him is the same reason it's been attractive to me is if you look at the wind and solar investable universe, it by and large has been a black hole for investor capital. It's been remarkable for consumers. And it looks like it's going to be pretty good for utilities right? Is they're able to kind of think about, it's almost like the way fracking's been an interesting development for the oil and gas industry. Um, wind and solar is kind of doing the same thing where you don't have to spend billions and billions of dollars and take a decade to build a power plant. You can build these mini plants, right? So, it, so while it's been a really, really tough industry, like all the solar panel companies have most have been terrible investments. There have been one or two winners out of 100. Um, Enphase and SolarEdge have been these weird little middleman companies that usually are terrible investments in any industry that have been huge winners. But what's interesting with this group of companies is by and large, they may not have all been market beaters, but like as a cohort, they've made people money, right? And that's really, really valuable because where they sit in the value chain, like I said, describe them, right? These are the companies that that either build or finance the renewable energy power plants, for lack of a better description. And then they, the, the output of those facilities is sold, mostly to utilities, but also to uh, big power producers like Alphabet and, and Apple and, you know, these Amazon, these companies, they talk about like they're, they're moving to like a carbon-free power. They're buying from Clearway Energy and, and Brookfield, right? That's how they're getting theirs. They're buying those power from those companies, right? So, so that's like what that means is they have these long, predictable cash flows from these assets. They know how, what the cost of capital is, right? They know how much they paid for it. They know what their cost of debt is and all that stuff. So like you can see a pretty good line of sight for how much you can make from that. What that means is like all the boom and bust cycles of like the solar panel and wind industry, when demand shifts from year to year based on legislation and based on how much money was spent the year before and based on the like all those other things that affect it, they're largely immune from that. And they can actually benefit, right? Because if there's a bust and the solar panel manufacturers have this race to the bottom to maintain market share and they fight on price, that's what they always fight over. Brookfield Renewable can win because they can buy at a lower cost, right? So all of those things to say, I think those realities kind of make the industry, this, this group of companies pretty immune from like technological disruption. Um, and also they have a history of making money. 
I would I would own I do own Brookfield, Nextera Energy Partners, Atlantica Sustainable, Clearway Energy. I own all of those. Hannon Armstrong, I want to say this is a different animal. Hannon Armstrong is really more about financing. Okay. They're less about like financing the assets and then like the the way they make money is different. They're more like a um, so you know there's two different kinds of REITs, Jeff. There's equity REITs, right? These are companies that own real estate and make money from like renting out the real estate. And then there's also mortgage REITs, okay? Which these are the companies that they like, they own bundles of mortgages, right? And they borrow money at a, at a lower rate than what they can earn by owning those mortgages, right? In a in a in a way, Hannon Armstrong is like kind of closer to being like a mortgage REIT than it is one of these other yield co's. So really it's more dependent on like management being really savvy about efficient allocation of capital and looking for like market inefficiencies where they can make money. So just be aware that that's like with Hannah Armstrong, that's kind of, kind of the reality. Austin had one other thing, Jeff, that that he said, he mentioned that he's uh, 26 years old and has lots of time to be in the market. Um, Talks about how, Beating the market isn't necessarily a priority, but more interested in dividend growth, dividend safety, um, kind of as a starting point with some modest price appreciation. I, I um, thought that was interesting context yeah. because the thing I the thing I keep thinking about with this question is the ten to fifteen year horizon, right? So mm-hmm. I, I would love to see these companies take off in the next ten or fifteen years and be. 10 baggers because that would mean we've we've moved to re- renewable energy at a faster pace than I think is likely to happen. Yeah. I think you're probably looking at 20 30 years before we really see that. So I think being younger like this is a basket you he, I think you could hold from age 26 until you retire and see yeah. a lot more progress than like if you or I were to buy this basket right now and expect in in 10 or 15 years, you know, like you know, if we just use our retirement ages as a as a next step in our life, you know, I don't know. I, I unfortunately, I think we're going to be burning fossil fuels for a lot longer than some people think. But if I'm wrong or if it accelerates, these these are good these are good choices. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree, and it's not. And it's there's worse strategies to have. You look at these companies by and large, and they, they mostly have a tri- tri- track record of growing their dividend, which you know that's that's really important. Um, Clearway Energy is the only one that's really kind of had any issues with that. Um, they had a lot of exposure to um, the names slipping my mind right now, but a big, uh, I think PG&E in California uh, went through bankruptcy and like the bankruptcy judge like froze a bunch of cash at a subsidiary, the Clear, a Clearway subsidiary until like the bankruptcy kind of proceeded a little more. Management said, hey, look, the cash is fine and we're going to get it and everything's going to be fine. And it turned out to be true but income investors, they had to suffer for you know a year or so while that played out. Um, so remember, you, you got to understand the individual company risk, and that can change a ton because these companies do take on a ton of debt, like utilities, to build their to build these projects, right? So um, their ability to well, continue to underwrite is really important. Well, and that's where the basket approach helps yeah. you out, Agreed. right? Rather than yep. putting putting everything on one or two stocks. All right, we had one more from Austin here. This will be fun because we'll be able to kick around some different ideas. How about if um, I ask the question and you answer this time, Jeff? Go ahead. Go for it. Yeah. So Austin says, what are your favorite, quote unquote, boring companies um, that make for exciting returns? I love the way that's phrased. Uh, preferably companies that fit into that set it and forget it 10 to 15 year investment style. Um, he mentions uh, industries like pool supply, self-storage, waste co- collection companies, 
that have trounced the market. And that's true. A lot of those like under the radar companies like just have generated amazing economic returns. Jeff, you got, you've got some ideas. So there were two that came to mind immediately for me. One that I own and one that I used to own and I sold for stupid reasons, um, which is another story for another day. But the first one is Old Dominion Freight Lines. Um, so they're a trucking company that does less than truckload um, ship uh, tr- trucking. So basically, instead of filling an entire tractor trailer up with iPhones, it's filled with iPhones and 10 or 10 different other things. And they rely on a very sophisticated logistic system to basically efficiently drop stuff off at different locations. Um, and I, they are boring. It's trucking, but they, they really do interesting things. A great management team, like two things that stuck, stick out to me from like recent, uh, earnings calls and things I've read, they operate at they operate constantly with extra capacity. So they waste money to always have extra capacity that they're just not using. So basically, more trucks and drivers than there is demand for, because it is a cyclical industry. And when demand picks up, they can say we have the capacity to to ship your stuff and the other their competitors have to scramble and hire and train drivers. You never you they never also, want to be the trucker trucking company that says sorry we can't take that load. Exactly. And the other thing they talked about on the most recent earnings call is they they'll hire and train drivers and spend money to do that and then when it's slower they have them do other jobs for the company. So they'll take a trucker and they'll have him do a desk job for 6 months until the demand picks back up and then they put them in a truck and send them out. So they just do neat things like that that I think has led to a lot of their success. And to, to Austin's question here, over the past 10 years, they have returned uh, 1.4,000%, 1, 1. so 1,400% returns compared to the S&P 500's 200 every, every, That means every dollar you invested is now worth $15. Right. So they have um, – they've you know destroyed the market over the past 10 years. So they fit – the, the question exactly. Boring companies that have done really well. The other one that comes to mind, and it's been a winner too, just not as big, is Watsco, uh, ticker symbol WSO. They are a HVAC company. Um, they don't sell directly. They're a distributor. Um, what's more boring than heating and air conditioning, but everyone needs it, right? Um, Nothing more boring is being a distributor of heating and air right. conditioning. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that insulates them a little bit from from some of the challenges in the industry. But um, this one, I don't know as well. I can't give any like in-depth analysis of them other than to say, I know that they are looking forward to some recent uh, federal environmental legislation that will sort of force the hand of um, the the industry to like for people to upgrade to more efficient systems and they think mm-hmm. that's going to be a tailwind for, for them for a while um, over the last 10 years they've also beat the market by about 215 um, percent so another long-term winner that is pretty boring but you, you, they're great to have in in your portfolio I mean they, they give a lot of ballast and they're they're not just for the dividend right they're not they're not just a company you have for the dividend. They actually have been beating the market. So what about you, Jason? Do you have, do you have a couple in mind? Yeah, so this, this, this is a, a cohort I haven't talked about in a while. But I think in a way, home builders kind of fit, fit in this because and they're not very interesting. They, they don't really tend to actually get very much attention from investors. They might seem scary, but if you look at NVR, yeah, this is a company that man, they just make money. I mean, they've 
they've made money like almost every year for like 30 years. I mean, even going through the global financial crisis, which was a house, housing crisis, right? Home builders were going out of business. Banks were <laughs> blowing up because of all of the mortgage debt they had. NVR was still making money, right? Um, just a really, really well-run company. They're, they're really smart about how they allocate capital. They kind of originated the more light asset model of, of using um, um, options on land instead of taking on debt and buying land that you sit on. Um, again, the, the idea is that it keeps your balance sheet a little more protected when you do go through those cycles because housing is a very cyclical industry, as we know, right? It's, it's tough right, right now. But trades for like 14 times expected 2023 earnings. They've bought back a ton of shares over the years, and they're really good at buying land. And they're really good at then buying land where, where there's opportunities to develop it, and then having a really good cadence of building out that land and making money. And they also have a pretty good finance business, too, a good mortgage business that they've leveraged to be a way to juice returns when times are even better. So I think NVR is just a timeless home builder stock that I think trades for a pretty good price right now. And I could that's one I think is worth owning for 20 years. Do you think that they face any short-term challenges and headwinds with higher mortgage prices and, and home prices being higher? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, this is, they're, they're going to make a lot less money in 2023 than they did last year. Um, who knows what 2024 is going to look like, but um, probably kind of like 2023. Um, but again, I think what we have to remember is that when you, you want to buy companies, the best time to buy companies that, are, that have proven over the long term that, they can, that they're, they're really well run and they can make money is when there's temporary weakness. And that's clearly the case in home builders. And, and you buy when the industry is weak, but the companies are still, and the company is still strong. And that's clearly the case, the case with NVR. And then you think about the, the real issues with housing. This isn't 2007, 2008, right. 2009, where we had, I don't know, a couple of years of excess inventory to sell through. We're still like a couple of years short on the amount of inventory that we need. Jeff, and to be honest with you, rising interest rates, I think, is going to exacerbate that because I think there are going to be a lot more tre- people that are kind of trapped in their house. Yep, they're going to just stay. They're going to stay. It's going to be good for Home Depot because they're going to spend money on that house. But all the people that want a house, home builders are going to have to meet more of that demand. So I think NVR is one of those that's going to do it. All right. So we're done with Austin's questions. Thank you, Austin, for kicking us off here. And that's um, the end of our show. No, I'm kidding. And that's it. Yes, it's all it's the Austin show, and now it's over. Um, we got a good one from Ken on Twitter. Uh, how do you decide whether or not to sell a position when the valuation gets stretched? My highest position is only four percent max. Hard for me to sell when it's not a large position. But what if we hit November twenty one valuations, and I have twenty stocks that make up forty percent of the portfolio? And they're all clearly out of touch with fundamentals. Maybe this is an emotional issue more than anything. Trimming so many stocks, is that harder to do? So what do you think about Ken's question here, Jason? Yeah, I have thoughts here, Jeff. The, my first thought is I'm really concerned that there's a ton of hindsight bias for a lot of investors right now when thinking about this. We just went through, and it's taken me some time to kind of come back around to this, 
we've come through what I think is going to prove to be on a much smaller scale, kind of like a dot-com bubble, right? Uh, there was Money was easy. It was cheap. Retail investors had lots of money and nothing else to do but trade stocks. Wall Street had lots of free, cheap cash. Debt was cheap, right? Everybody was convinced the market was just going to keep going up until it didn't, right? And I think as a result, there is a huge number of investors, particularly probably a lot of people that have kind of been cutting their teeth over the past couple of years, um, that are so biased to the crash that we've gone through the past year plus, right? 14, 15 months at this point from like the NASDAQ peak. Um, and, and I think for most, young, and I'll use uh, Austin as an example, 26 years old, Jeff, you and I, mid forties, probably most of the people watch listening, listening to us are probably still net contributors. And I think it's a mistake for most investors to spend an outsized portion of their time thinking about trimming existing positions. When the opportunities that we can actually see and identify are deploying capital, right? Not trimming existing positions. So all of that to say, again, Ken, I get what, where you're coming from and you know the, the spiel, this is not individual advice, but I think it's really important to be mindful of not biasing too much on a singular event um, and applying it going forward because um, it, it can backfire. Though, though here's the way I think about it. Um, thinking about valuations, number one, the risk um, being wrong and then you never get back in as a result, right? You bias to, to where you sold and you got to get a cheaper price and you, and you never you re-enter that position, right? Um, you, you also get, it's so easy to get too caught trying to make perfect allocation decisions. And that's a huge waste of time, honestly, to try to get it right. Uh, Warren Buffett, just in his last um, annual letter, Jeff, he talked about how the majority of his success comes down to just a handful of stocks that have done extraordinarily well, a few that have done pretty good, and then a bunch of mediocre investments. That's Warren Buffett saying that, right? So the, I think we can get too caught up in trying to get it perfect. And the other risk, I think, is getting lucky a few times and maybe calling a top. And then you think you have skill. And then you spend the next five years gutting your portfolio, thinking that you know when the top is, and it, and it never works out. So I think the better approach, instead of necessarily getting too caught up in where's the price today and is that way too overvalued, is think about your financial goals. Five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, think about where that company fits in helping you meet it. And do you want to continue to owning that company because you think it can grow from here to there versus from here to next month? Yeah, I, I think that's all great. Great advice, great. Well, not even advice, just great frameworks to kind of think through. So I'm not in a position yet where I have a big enough portfolio of individual stocks where this is anywhere near a concern for me. In fact, I'm still trying to build out what what you like to call big boy positions. Um, so, but I've heard this talked about a lot 
by people smarter than me. So I will share a couple things that I've heard that resonate with me. So one is that I think the time you would want to consider like actually trimming a position by selling it is if it becomes such a large part of your like total wealth that you're literally not sleeping. Right? So if you had a stock that was like you know, whatever the number is, 15% of your portfolio, or it was this X dollar amount. And you're thinking to yourself, oh my God, that's, that's the cost of a, this, right? And you're like losing sleep. I could see the argument for taking a little bit off the table and just reducing your stress that way. I like the idea when you see a position growing to be what you might consider to be an outsized portion, whether it's because of just time and appreciation or some crazy run up, buying other stocks, to, to sort of balance it out that way, right? Because yeah. if you spend money on different stocks, you'll reduce the impact of that one. Um, but I also don't think it's, you know, a, a bad idea to take, you know, if like here's what I, what I would say, like there's nothing wrong with trimming a tiny bit and just keeping track of how, like you said, like keep track of how you did, yeah, right? Maybe sell a couple hundred bucks of it or a couple thousand bucks of it, depending on how big it is, and use that money, put it in something else, and then keep track of what you did. I sold it on this date for this price. What happens six months from now? Test you could test something like that. I wouldn't go selling half a position, but you can test it with tiny amounts of money and just kind of like, oh, that one didn't turn out well, or that one did. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. But generally, I think you're right. Like it. It's so much work. It's so much effort. You're probably not going to do it right. And unless it's a material, it's going to make that position is going to be like make a material difference to your wealth or your quality of life. Probably best to just let it be. Yeah, I always use the GE in two thousand example. Right? Is you know if 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 you own GE in two thousand, it was twenty percent of your net worth, and you were fifty. You know the confluence of all of those, and obviously we have hindsight to tell us that GE in two thousand is time to sell every bit of your GE and to go long Apple. But the reality is, you know, you, again thinking about probabilities is. You know, what is it risk to your future if you don't sell it? Right. And for me, there's not a single position that I own that if everything went terrible today, um, would really undermine my future. Right. So I kind of start from there. But Jeff, I want to highlight the last, lastly, that we were talking about. If you're going to do it, keep score, hold yourself accountable. Right. Yeah. Occasionally, I go back because I keep track of everything I sell. Not I've not sold to trim a position, but just stocks I've sold. And I do go back and look. Occasionally, like every couple months, I'll be like, "All right, let me go see how all these stocks did." Because I wanted, I want to know, like, did I make the right decision? Was I too hasty? And it's eye opening when you act. Because I forget, I don't remember when I sold it. Why, you know, go back and look, and it's like, oh, that's up two hundred percent since I sold it. <laughs> Maybe that was the wrong decision. Um, yeah, keeping score and holding yourself accountable can be. Can be really helpful. We got a couple more right. quick, quick questions here. We got John on Twitter. This is more of a comment, but I, I loved it, Jeff. Yeah. So it's in reference to the episode last week with uh, with uh, Mitch Fatel, and John writes, "I was skeptical of your episode this week. Well, because it's you two every sure. every week. Me and Jeff. Every, yes, skeptical. you should always be skeptical of every episode because it's us." But I listened while I was snowblowing here in Michigan. Can't believe the similarities between long-term investors. And this is the interesting part. Do you guys find it interesting that it seems like every starting investor back in the day has a Cisco story? And the references, I, I talked in the last podcast about relative of mine that bought Cisco one time at the top of the, the very, very top, the peak, and 
to this day, back in 99, 2000, 2001, whatever it was. And to this day, it's not back to that price. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and yeah, there, that, that happens. Well, and if it's not Cisco, it's something, right? There's, right. there's something. And I, I just wanted to say this, the thing about that, the conversation we have with, with Mitch Fatal that just really stuck with me is right. We think he's a famous guy. He's was a big comedian back in the day. Um, we're all basically alike, right? We're, and we're all far more alike than we are different. And this is my plea for everybody out there to remember that broadly, right? Investing, politics, sports, everything. We're just, we have far more life's experiences and the way we think about the world that are alike than different. Yeah. And I think talking about, talking about, Money and investing is just something people don't do. It's still sort of a little bit of a third rail in a lot of you know social circles. But I, I think one of the things that you and I are in agreement on trying to do here is to talk about all the things that are involved with investing, but not just like the oh here's my big win, yeah. But the mistakes, the things we wonder about, the things that keep us up at night, all that kind of stuff. Um, the only other thing I thought of when I read this comment from John was, you know, this is the reason. We advocate for a diversified portfolio and for, you know, buying in in thirds or in chunks or DCAing into positions because the worst thing you could do, or the best thing you could do if you get it right, is just make one purchase of one stock one time because <laughs> you really you really have to be right. Um, and unfortunately for my relative, you know, they they didn't know any better, and that was enough to keep them out of the market for decades. Um, all right, last question we have here. And based on how much you, you've talked about bonds on this podcast, Jason, I can I can tell you're excited about this one. This is from Kyle on Twitter who writes, is it finally time to buy bonds? I uh, Am I, at 40, too young to even care? Take it away, Jason. This is fantastic. And I'm going to say absolutely not. No, I'm kidding. I'm going to say maybe, definitely maybe. But before you run to bonds, look at like the six-month, 11-month... CD that online that your online banks are giving. Yeah, you yeah. can get like five percent on some of these things, and you don't have to commit, right, to an extended period of time. I mean, you get three and a half percent. You get almost four percent just in a savings account, Jeff. Yeah, I don't follow bonds that closely, but my understanding, again, based on listening to people smarter than me, is that it, the time of bonds being completely worthless like we've seen over the past couple of years might be behind us with this sort of new world we're in with interest rates and things like that. Um, is that, is that accurate in your mind, Jason? Like, do you think it, it's sort of going to be better for bonds moving forward, even if not immediately? Yeah. So here's the weird thing. I think it's actually important that we look at last year because last year was actually a terrible year for bonds, like as an asset class, Bonds have lost a lot of money. Like one of the worst. And it's odd for that to happen yeah. in the same year where equities have a bad year too. Right. And and the the reason it happens is because interest rates went up a ton, right? And have continued to go up. And bonds and interest rates have an inverse relationship. As the as as interest rates go up, existing issues lose value, right? If I bought a bond that issue that pays five uh, percent yield. And the bond that if and a bond running the same remaining term was available at a ten percent yield, and everything else was equal, I would have to discount 
my bond if I wanted to sell it before it matured. Because somebody could just buy a bond that's going to generate twice the yield, right? So as a result, bonds absolutely tanked last year, right? So um, I'll say this. There are, there are yields you can get out there that are higher than that. Like you look at a lot of companies are issuing debt 6 7%, right? So there, there is, are definitely there's higher yields that you can capture out there. But there's a difference between owning bonds and owning bond funds, owning bond ETFs or bond mutual funds. They have like the, the PIMCO has is like one of the big bond fund operators it, out there. And then Vanguard has lots of um, bond funds as well and bond ETFs. And when you own the, it's when you own a company, when you own stock, you own a portion of a company. When you invest in a bond fund, you don't own a portion of every specific, every bond directly. You, you do but the mechanics are different because bond funds turn over bonds, right? So as a result, the value that you have in that ETF is going to fluctuate with interest rates and, and what, the bond, what the fund is doing um, with its bonds. So you don't get the same like rock solid security as owning a bond directly. So you need to understand that those mechanics are there. Um, I think most of the pain is probably over for... Um, for bond ETFs and bond funds. Um, but I think just kind of keep that in mind. The other, the other aspect Jeff, you hinted at is like last year was an anomaly that bonds lost so much money. And you typically don't see that. Like the idea is it's not just that it's stable, um, and you earn that yield, but you don't see the volatility to the downside that you usually do with stocks. And that generally proves the case, right? So the, again, the idea is that you don't have the upside, but you also don't, don't have the downside. Um, so it can provide ballast. Okay, everybody, we really appreciate those questions. Don't go anywhere. Hopefully you'll hear an ad while we're, we're doing that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It is time for our B segment. And as Jeff mentioned at the open, time to talk about the Smattering Portfolio and the Smattering Portfolio Contest. Jeff, before we kind of hash it out, you want to remind everybody what in the hell we're talking about? Yes. So we have to, it's been a while, we have to remind everyone briefly about the contest. So essentially, there are four portfolios and one, what we're calling an unportfolio in this Smatter folio. Basically, I picked three stocks. Jason picked three. We picked three together, and the audience picked three. And then Jason and I each picked two for each of us, so four total stocks that we were convinced would we, – we, we called them the unportfolio, stocks we would never buy, right? And basically, at the end of each quarter, we are going to donate money to charity of the choice of the team that wins. So if the audience's three stocks – have the highest return at the end of the first quarter, Jason and I will each give $50 to the chosen charity of the audience, and we would encourage all of our listeners to do the same. If our combined team wins, we will each also give $50 to the combined team charity. And then here's where it gets interesting. If I win, 
Jason needs to pick up both of our donations for my charity. And if Jason wins, I pick up both of our donations for his charity. But only if we also beat the S&P 500, right? So in order for the other person to have to pay, pay double, you have to win and you have to beat the market. So that's really quick, uh, a recap of what we're doing here. Now, we, we, did, we announced the portfolio in December. We gave a quick January update. We're going to give a quick February update today. But here's what we need from the listeners. We don't have charities chosen yet for the audience's team. So if you're interested in suggesting to us a charity, please send it to us privately, either uh, email or DM. And the reason is when you start talking publicly about charities on Twitter, spam comes. So we'd like to avoid that. Um, And then we're going to just make a decision, the two of us, about what the audience's charity will be rather than go out for a poll. We thought that seemed a little tacky. Um, Bottom line is we're trying to raise money. It's just for fun. If you want to give money to any charity, you can, but that's just what we're doing to keep this interesting. So uh, if, you, if you're listening and you have a charity idea for the audience portfolio, please send it to us, and uh, we'll announce that along with the actual winners when we get to the end of the third, uh, first quarter, end of March, uh, in early April. So we, a couple weeks ago, reviewed the January portfolio returns, and it was one month, and we didn't really dive too deep, and we're not going to do that today either, but we did talk about how crazy it's been for one month. Um, and when we look at the returns for February, it's still kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, we, we rain like the worst stock at the end of February is down, uh, 18%. And the best stock is up 75%. (laughs) So, and both of those, by the way, are in the unportfolio, which we'll talk about in a second. Yeah. So, so let's so, let's let's context that. The, not the best stock, the best performing stock. Sorry, the best performing stock. Yeah, yes, that's a pretty wanna... shitty stock. <laughs> All right. So we're going to go through each team here pretty quickly. Uh, expect a deeper dive at the end of uh, the quarter. We're going to dedicate an episode to really going through all these companies uh, in more detail. But team audience, so just a reminder, their three stocks are uh, Brookfield Infrastructure Partners, ticker symbol BIP, Mercado Libre, which is M-E-L-I, and Taiwan Semiconductor, which is T-S-M. So uh, at the end of February, that mini portfolio was up 23%, um, and that was a little bit down from the 26% they were up at the end of January. Um I, I don't know what your kind of overall take with these three companies is, Jason. To me, it's like the the earnings for all three were sort of more of what we'd expect from them. No yeah. big surprises, upside or downside. Um, you know, the 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 return for Mercado Libre, especially that one was up forty four percent at the end of February, is you know crazy. But um, overall, I think for them, it, it, the story is you know just more of the same. Yeah, I think I think just looking at it, like looking at this portfolio. And again, three stocks doesn't make up a portfolio in the real world. It shouldn't. But looking at this group of stocks versus the other ones, I think this is the one, like if you look back in history at the performance of every single company, this is the one that I think is the best sleep at night of the group. Like if you look at all of the other ones, there's going to be at least one that it's like, hmm, that one really hasn't ever proven that it can do it. Or there's other questions. So I think that's what's so interesting to me is that 23% number one is amazing. Right, that's great. Yeah. That's a great year. That's a great year. Two months in, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And and I think these are three that you can just kind of depend on being being pretty good companies. All right, that's that's my thoughts on it. Yeah, the audience did a great job with that one. Um, all right, so let's go through your three, Jason. 
So CrowdStrike, ticker CRWD, Lemonade, ticker LMND, and Trex, ticker TREX. Um, this is the uh, this is of 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 the uh, the three portfolios that were the ones that you picked that I picked and that the members that our, our listeners picked. Uh, mine's the only one that actually improved its returns from the first month of the year, the second month of the year. Um, so that was interesting, and 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 that was because CrowdStrike um, really got off to a slow start in in January, and even though it didn't report until like a week or so ago the stock started to kind of come around as some of its competitors reported and the expectations were that it was going to report a pretty good quarter. Um, but there, there's, you know, there's not much to say. I think the big one with like is with lemonade. I'm like, I'm still watching to see if they can grow up to be a good insurer because I think at the end of the year as lemonade goes kind of will be how this portfolio ends up going. I agree. I think it'll be interesting also to see how Trex does as the year goes on. Cause I think they're facing, Maybe Probably the biggest headwinds, right, in terms of like this industry. Yep. I, I think that's 100% right. What about your portfolio? Yeah. All right. So my three are Amazon, AMZN, Outset Medical, ticker symbol OM, and the Trade Desk, which is TTD. Um, so I had a worse February. I, I ended January with that uh, those three up 15%. I ended February with those up only 8%. Um, and mainly because of Outset actually, Medical, right? Yeah. Outset really... Um, Despite what I thought were good results when they reported in February, um, the market didn't react too great to them. I, I think it's just early for Outset. I'm really interested to see how they do throughout this year. Management talked about um, a better second half of the year. And I feel like, sort of like Lemonade for you, it was th- that's the one for me where if they have a good quarter in here or some really great news that comes out, like I could see that really jumping as it, as people get excited about well, it. Well, it's the moonshot, um, right? If they continue to make traction with that, that, that in-home... Uh, less physician interactive be, need to be involved um, dialysis that could be just a massive catalyst. Yeah, yeah. So that that was really what dragged me down. I mean, Amazon too—they're going to face headwinds this whole year. I said at the beginning of the year, it, my it was a little bit of a gamble for me to to see. Like, I think they're going to be a good returning stock over the long term from here, but in one year they could still face enough e-commerce headwinds to not have a great 2023. So we'll see, but, uh, up 8% at the end of February. Jeff, if, all right, let's, let me ask you just real quick with Amazon. If Amazon finished the year up 12%, you'd have to chalk that up as fine, right? As a good performance, you should be happy with that, right? Yeah, no, no, I agree. If, if they were flat from here to the end, I think as the shareholder and also for this portfolio, cause I, I skeptical that, all these double-digit percentages we're seeing right now are going to stay for the whole year. We'll we'll see. I could be wrong. Um, yeah, I'd sign up for twelve percent right now for Amazon. Absolutely. Okay, let's talk about Team Smattering. This is the one that you and I jointly built. And again, yeah, and go ahead. The, well, I was going to say the first one, Boston Omaha, which is BOC, is is down nine percent at the end of February. Which is funny because literally nothing since the beginning of January I've seen. No news about this company. Right. Nothing. Right. No press release. No upgrades or downgrades from any significant analysts, at least that I caught. And here we are. Ended January around flat. Ended February down nine percent. They report sometime in the next couple of weeks, so we'll have to see. I've been thinking. Um, I've been thinking about Boston Omaha a little bit, Jeff. And, and I think I think what's happened is so number one, it's very undercovered because it is a small business, 
and they're really under the radar. They manage. They don't. They don't do tons of conferences and issue shiny presentations. They don't spend money no. on that stuff, and they don't waste resources on that. They just focus on the business. But what I've been thinking is, as interest rates have continued to rise, there are parts of the business, and they're pretty acquisitive. Some more capital intensive parts of the business. I wonder if the market's just a little bit concerned that rising interest rates are going to kind of be some headwinds for their the way like their business model. Yeah, and. There's also, you know, because they have a pretty significant investment portfolio, um, that's always hit or miss, you know, quarter to quarter too. Like they, their gap, their gap returns could really take a hit if their investment portfolio has a bad quarter too. So we'll have to see how that shakes out. What about Datadog and Simon Uh, Property? So Datadog had a another good quarter. I thought Um, they're up four percent. The whole portfolio was around flat for the end of February. Let's just get to that. it was up four percent the end of January, ended February around flat. Um, yeah, Datadog I think had a, a pretty normal quarter. Again, it's still a really expensive stock, so unless they really blow the you know blow the roof off the joint, so to speak, they're going to either get hit or see modest gains after earnings. The, the expectations are just really high. Um, and I I mean Simon Property Group I think had a, a good quarter too. You know we were saying to each other the other day. The bottom line is retail is not dead, and they have the best malls. Yeah, there's so, nothing else to say. That says it all. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the smattering unportfolio. So again, these are the four stocks, the one four stock group. You pick two, I pick two, and essentially the thesis was these are emblematic of the kind of stocks that Jeff and I neither one ever intend to own. And of course, as as of course as, as one does. It's trouncing all of the other portfolios. It was up 30% in January. It's now up 43% so far this year. And the big the reason we've seen the biggest run is AMC has, is up 75%. It was up 75% through February, uh, the end of February. And Blink has collapsed, but Meta and Tesla both, the stocks have continued to recover after really, really ugly 2022s. Yeah, and this is just going to be a fascinating set of four companies to watch, I think, because the two you chose are the kind that can be up or down by 20, 30, or 40, or 50% in any week. Yeah. You know, Blink because it's just a really volatile company, AMC because it's whatever Reddit users decide to do with it. Um, I, the two I chose, Meta and Tesla, were more about I would never own them for. Just like I don't like the companies, like I don't like Elon Musk, and I don't like what Facebook does, so I would never buy them for those reasons. And I thought they could see headwinds this year, like Tesla is lowering prices. You have to wonder if they're going to see some decreased demand as more and more EVs come online from other companies. Meta was just just burning cash, lighting it on fire. Um, But well, Zuckerberg said the word caveat that the burning it within. Within reality labs, right? the, the total business still generates a lot of yes. cash, right? Right, right, right. But you know, they're, he's putting all his eggs in that basket, and it r- remains to be seen if that basket's going to turn into anything. There you go. Um, it's going to be fun to follow he, for the he, year. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that's it. The 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 February ended with uh, the un portfolio trouncing everyone else. Uh, Team audience, you're in second place. So good job. You did a great job. Coming to get you. And then, uh, Coming to get you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, luckily, I am not I am not losing. Uh, our combined team is losing as of the end of February. So we'll, this is fun. We'll see how this goes. Uh, we'll do a longer review at the end of March, and we'll talk about our, our charities uh, when we do that. Okay, friends. Thank you so much for your great questions. It was fun to answer them. But you have to remember, 
Our answers aren't necessarily your answers. That's for you to figure out. You can do it. All right, Jeff. See you next time, buddy. See you next time.